Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. Now, as the Trump era appears to be slowly coming to an end... Despite the president's attempts to desperately hold on to power, it seems like the right time to reflect on the history of authoritarianism and unfreedom. And to do this, we have Professor Tim Schneider. Now, Tim is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University, and he spoke to Dan about the origins of totalitarian ideas and kleptocratic aspirations during the 1920s and 30s, and how these influence Russian politics but also American politics today. Now, Tim has written many, many books. Two of my favourites are On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, and America. So, check them out. And if you like the podcast, then like, follow, subscribe, share, and check us out as well online, on Twitter, at HistoryHitWW2, and on Instagram, at James Rogers History. But here, now, is the fantastic Tim Schneider on authoritarianism and unfreedom. Enjoy. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very glad to be with you. What does Russia tell us today about how democracies die? Well, Russia tells us things in two different ways. The first is that Russia shows us a certain trajectory which we might follow. I think it's it's very important to see us, the US, the UK, the European Union, Ukraine, and Russia as part of the same story, a story which at the Russian extreme involves wealth concentration, oligarchy, media as spectacle, and a certain equilibrium. We could go that way. In the US, in many ways, we are going that way. The second way that Russia tells us a story is by bringing us along towards its reality. What I'm trying to explain in Road to Unfreedom is how Russian policy jollies us along, intervenes in our politics, moves us in certain ways so that our country become our country or countries become more like Russia. And and can you explain your thesis? I mean what what has Russia become? Well, as far as I'm concerned, we're we're at a critical turning point, which we have to recognize as such. We we get our heads beaten in every day by the news cycle. And and so much has happened in the last few years, I think that it's hard for us to see a pattern in it. The pattern that I see 
is a change in political time where people used to believe in progress. People used to think that things were automatically going forward in some direction or another towards a new pattern where people are looking back to the past, you know, imagining, uh, for example, that a British nation state once existed and trying to get back to it or imagining that America in the 1930s, America first was a good idea. Or in the case of Russia, reviving fascist thinkers from the 1930s and looping back in time. What Russia has perfected is a politics which I call in the book, The Politics of Eternity, where there really isn't a future. You just have, you have, you have a frozen present of wealth inequality, which is made governable by, by daily spectacle, um, the, a news or a media which turns the rest of the world into a spectacle and which gets you to forget about the future or about the, pol- about the possibility that there might be policy to make things better. And can you talk a little bit about, because I was very struck in your book, by the uh, philosophical uh, inspiration for for Putin and 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 people in the West who are, who are developing their critiques of democracy. Uh, that, thank you for that question. I think that's a very important point. I think a lot of us, especially in the Anglo-Saxon world, have spent the last quarter of a century persuading ourselves that ideas don't matter. But of course, the idea that the idea that ideas don't matter is itself an idea, and it's one that matters because it makes you vulnerable. It means that you don't see other people's ideas. You know, once we convince ourselves that history is over or that there are no alternatives, what we're really doing to ourselves is blinding us to how history moves on and blinding ourselves to what those alternatives are. So I try to start the book um, very firmly with the point that you make that there are, in fact, philosophers from the 20th century who matter to politicians today. One of them is uh, Ivan Ilin, who was a far-right thinker, indeed a kind of Christian totalitarian fascist thinker in the 20s and 30s and 40s, who has been revived by President Putin and who has been cited by him at basically every important juncture of Russian politics in the last decade or so. And Eileen helps you because if, if you are at the top of that kind of kleptocratic regime, because what Eileen explains is that nothing in the world is true, therefore um, propaganda and psychological warfare is okay. He explains that the only repository of God's future possible truth is your own country, therefore anything that you do is justified. And he defines politics in in traditional fascist corporatist terms, that is everyone and everything has its place, and therefore there's no reason to expect any kind of social mobility. So I start the book very heavily on that point because I think we have to understand that there are ideas out there or else we'll we'll keep getting surprised um, time after time. It's funny because I was I was reading a book the last few days, and then just before we came on the air, Anne Applebaum tweeted a Pat Buchanan blog in which he was using some of the same nationalist uh, rhetoric. I mean, how how have these are you amazed by how these ideas have taken hold in the states, and how fragile is democracy in the states at the moment? We're all desperate to know over this side of the pond. Well, I mean, let me break that into two questions. So, I, I think that we are all as I say, in this together. And what is happening is that a a story about how there aren't alternatives and the future just must be the present, but better and more is breaking into a story about how we are innocent and the enemy on the other side of the wall or the border is always coming to get us. What I call the politics of inevitability on the one side and the politics of eternity on the other. Democracy depends upon some other view of time. Democracy is about making time. Democracy is about all of our individual capacity for error accumulating in votes 
which allow our country to continue institutionally and, and, and morally and collectively. So democracy depends upon time and democracy pr produces time. Democracy and history, as we understand it, I think are, are actually very close together. What, uh, how, what's the problem in the U.S.? I mean, I think it's important not to kind of get trapped in the day-to-day -day alarm of all of the crazy things that our head of state does, and rather to ask what were the structural things, um, I would name, for example, wealth inequality, that allow uh, someone with his particular skill set to power come to power? And what is it about globalization that allows a, a Russian intervention to make a decisive difference in, in our politics? Those are questions that we can ask and, and, and answer. And I think we can actually get, get a drop on them and improve things in the next few years, provided that we, A, see this as a real threat to democracy, but B, don't panic. Okay, we're not panicking, sir. Uh, what is, as a historian, what... Where where are you going at the moment? I mean, obviously, you talked about this, you know, Ilian uh, in the, in the, working in the nineteen twenties. Is are we are we really? Uh, does it feel like the interwar period is the place where we we're gathering our most useful and fruitful parallels at the moment? I I, I would say so. I mean, I, I think I think history is instructive both for people on on the dark side of all this and for people who are resisting them. For um, I mean, for for what's becoming a kind of mainstream in in Europe whether it's Hungary or Poland or Russia or in, in France or in different ways, Britain, the 1930s is a kind of reservoir of an imaginary vision of a nation state, which in fact in the history of Western Europe doesn't actually exist. Either you were empires or you were parts of an integration project. There was never a nation state in your history. Over here, the 1930s are a reservoir of an, of an imaginary America, uh, the America first America, which didn't go to war in Europe, which didn't have a welfare state, which, where Roosevelt was never president. That's the kind of imaginary, warm, white nationalist retrospect that Mr. Trump and some of his supporters use. So on that side, yes. And then on the side of people who are resisting them, I think the 1930s is useful intellectually because it reminds us that globalization can break, that it, that already happened once in the 1930s. And it also reminds us of the things that we learned about political behavior, for example, that uh, what what citizens do in moments like the ones we're we're in now matters much more than in in typical times. We have we have this whole beautiful collection of wisdom from people who resisted fascism, or for that matter, communism, um, which, if you remember our history, we can then we can call forth and and exploit. Do you feel is this an exciting time to be a historian? Is it an exciting time to be Tim Snyder? Because I, I read your book on tyranny, which which I, I couldn't put it down. I read it once. I read it one sitting, and it felt like this was a book that a historian could only write when the, the when the present had had taken on a, a, a altogether more alarming tone. It's a it's a strange time to be a historian because I mean I, I sincerely think that. We are now paying the historical price for a quarter century of saying that history is over. And so I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is reminding people of elementary intellectual and moral conventions and reminding people of the things that we all once knew about the 20th century. So it's, it's, an, it's, an, odd, it's an odd feeling. It's an uncanny feeling of, of trying to relate a present to, to a past. I don't think exciting is the word that that <laughs> that I would choose, but it certainly is a moment where one feels that there isn't enough history and that there's an awful lot of work to be done. And I guess I guess the the good thing about it is realizing that people are are reading history and reading investigative journalism and putting the two together in ways which can be exciting when it leads people to take action. 
Did you imagine five years ago that you would be penning a pamphlet called On Tyranny? No, no, of course. Oh, no, sorry. No, no, of course not. <laughs> no. Uh, and sorry. in its pages, uh, it's sort of useful advice about how to, how to combat it. I mean, did you ever imagine that would be happening? No. I mean, On Tyranny exists because I, I took myself out of the United States and out of the 20th century, 21st century, and tried very hard to learn all of the languages that I needed to know and read the historiography that I needed to read to understand the darkest parts of Europe. I took myself away from the U.S. and from the present time, you know, for for most of my adult life, the U.S. has been a, has been home. It's been a place that I go back to. It's not it's not work. Um, what happens was that after I thought I had understood some of the things that led to political atrocity in the 20s, 30s, and 40s of the 20th century, in 2016 I recognized things. I recognized certain patterns, even even turns of phrase. Um, and then when Mr. Trump won the election, I felt like I had to do something. So it, the, the, the 20 lessons that became on tyranny were the first thing that I could do. When he won, I felt like there was a bus on my chest. And the, I, I think like a lot of people, I had to find something to do which matched my authentically matched what I could do and what I knew something about. And then once I, once I did that little thing, then I started to feel better. What, you mentioned we've paid the price 25 years saying history was finished. I mean, I couldn't agree more, of course. Uh, but also, I feel when I was studying history and growing up in, in history, there was a huge debate about history, the usefulness of history, and we, we shouldn't regard it as useful. It's, Machiavelli was wrong. It's not a kind of handbook you turn to and see what you do if you're invaded by someone else. You, in in your recent work and in everything you say, you seem to, you seem to think history is pretty damn useful and important. Yeah, I mean, a a you could say Fultemue, right? That like it, 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 economics, for example, may not be giving us the sense of responsibility that we need. Um, political science and sociology didn't do a terrific job of explaining or anticipating what was going to happen in 2016. But on on the on the positive side, um, I think that history is useful, you know, in a slightly more profound way than a, as a handbook. I think. History can give us a sense of civic responsibility or just a personal responsibility because when you understand the history, then you see the structure. And if you see the structure, then you see your place in it. If you see your place in it, then you know what you can and can't change. And once you've seen that, then it's your responsibility to decide what's good, what's evil, what you're actually what you're actually going to do. I think history is also useful in breaking people out of these various stories, you know, which I'm, which I call inevitability, returnity. These stories about progress and doom, how it has to be this way, and how it has to be that way. His, history shows that moments are open, and sometimes the moments they're not open to everything. But history shows you how open they are, where the boundaries are, and and that that breaks you free. I mean, even imaginatively. I find it interesting how the people who, who know something about history are the ones who find it easiest to talk about the present moment, whereas the ones who don't get caught up in the news cycle and are elated or outraged, but they say the same things that everyone else is saying. And that way, history helps too. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What can and should citizens we all be doing? What is what are some of your what are some of your thoughts and lessons? Well, the, the most the, I mean the, the the fundamental lesson in in on tyranny and and on tyranny and road and freedom have this in common is that is that is that history means um, responsibility. The number one lesson in on tyranny is don't obey in advance. And it's number one for a reason. If you can't follow that one, then all the other lessons are, I think, pretty much irrelevant. What the 20th century teaches is that at least at the beginning, authoritarian regime changes require consent expressed in various ways. And our, our natural tendency when things change is to normalize, is to move in that direction without thinking about it. Right, we we react unthinkingly to adjust, and much of the time that's healthy. But I think precisely agency or individuality or really liberty depends on the ability to define a situation as not being normal, and to define your own normality, and just to break free of the flow for a minute, and to think about what you might actually do. So I think that's that's the most important lesson of of mid twentieth century history. It's saying it seems simple, but it's it's actually rather hard. And one of the things I noticed, you know, at least in the U.S. public sphere, is that people who a year ago said this was all going to be fine or it's all going to be normal, once you've committed to that position, you basically have immobilized yourself because a year into it, you're still saying the same thing. But if at the beginning you start to do things, then you at least create the possibility that you'll do more interesting things later on. It, and, it, and one thing I find is it's, it's, it's very important to act even if you're not 100% sure you're doing the right thing because you can always – once you start acting, you can always correct. But if, if your position at the beginning is it's all going to be fine or nothing's really happening, then you're really stuck. That's a fascinating uh, answer because, because what I learned from your books is you know, even having the courage to call – talk about tyranny, talk about unfreedom – you're saying this is something that we never imagined would happen. We have to start using these words. And it's funny, within history, it strikes me, the historians come down on two sides. I often interview historians, sometimes a little bit more right-wing, and I say, are you worried about the present? And they go, no, no, no. But they, they talk about the Second World War, they talk about Churchill, they eulogise, they say eternal vigilance is the price of the... And I go, well, hang on, this is the eternal vigilance thing, right? I mean, we need to start... This is it. This is our time. Um, are you someone who feels... No, I mean, has it been awkward for you to just, just to even to go there, to use words like tyranny, to, to, to open your mind to the fact this could be happening in your lifetime? No, on, on, on the contrary, I find it to be a great moral and intellectual relief. I think it, it's very important for historians and other people in the humanities to, to, to use concepts, if only to define possibilities. 
I think it, it's very important for us to use the language, and, and this is, by the way, a lesson of Churchill, it's very important for us to use the language to sketch out what the actual possibilities in life are. That's that's why we have these concepts from, from the Greeks and from elsewhere. And of course, the concept of tyranny is very much alive in the, the earliest of American traditions. The framers used the word. So I, no, I, I actually, on, on the contrary, I'm much more comfortable if, if if I can look at the world and say things could break in a certain way. They are breaking in in a certain way. And there's a reason, incidentally, why I mentioned Churchill in On Tyranny. Not that many people I actually mentioned by name. And Ch Churchill is one of them precisely because he had that capacity to simultaneously say things are extraordinarily difficult and yet one can imagine what we might do to make them better. That there's a reason why his moment was was his moment. It has to do with a kind of fearless conceptualization, um, both of the problem and and of the solution. And that's, I mean, one of the reasons, I, I wouldn't want to speak for everyone, of course, but that's one of the reasons why he leaves an impression is that precise ability to face reality in a way which is not sleepwalking. What advice have, have you got at the end of The Road to Unfreedom? What, what, what can... What can citizens do? Well, thanks for asking that. I mean, the, 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 on tyranny gives 20 rather practical and some of them pretty straightforward bits of advice. Road to Unfreedom makes the case that history is about virtue. And that's a word that I'm now using completely unironically. Road to Unfreedom, as it, as it tells the story of the 2010s, as it moves from, from Russia through Europe to the United States, it's also telling a story of how institutions are eroded and it's making a case that institutions are associated with virtues and we realize how the virtues are built into the institutions as the institutions fall apart before our eyes. So I'm making a case in Road to Unfreedom that if we see contemporary history, then we get an idea of, of, of good and evil, of, of, of virtue and vice. And, and the virtues that I'm trying to identify, not as, as ones that we, sh we probably should be in favor of, but also as ones that are built into our institutions are individu individuality, succession, integration, novelty, uh, truth, and equality. And at the end of the book, I try to make a case how we actually do understand these virtues. And in public life, we often intuitively see how they, they fit together. I think one of the, the one step that we need to take is to see that the institutions are actually threatened. Another is to say we actually care, you know, that we think some things are better than than others, and therefore we're going to defend them. There there are forces at play, some of them technical, some of them geopolitical, which are aiming precisely at disintegration, at making things fall apart. And you, the answer to that can't be entirely technical. I mean, part of it has to be moral. How would we like for things to come together again? Do you think this is a could be a time of of rebirth? Do you think when the when the tide starts to the flood again, actually we could see pos hugely positive changes in the West and anywhere? I I I, I do think that's possible. I mean, s certainly, you know, the, the the nineteen the nineteen forties and fifties teach us that sometimes recovery from much greater disaster can come much more quickly than we expect. What I don't think is going to happen is a recovery without a lot of mental recalibration. You know, certain basic ideas, like for example, that uh, history history is over, or if history is real, it only flows from west to east rather than the other way around, or that technical improvement in the sphere of the internet has to automatically bring enlightenment. There are certain ideas which are simply so bad 
which will that we'll have to replace them. We'll have to get around them and come up with other ideas. But I, I, I do think that we could be on the cusp of those kinds of reconsiderations. It's not going to happen without a without an extremely creative younger generation. Um, and I mean creative in in humanistic, not just in technical terms. Uh, it's not it's not going to happen without that. I've I, I've got after a year of talking to people, I've got some reason to hope that that might be coming. Um, speaking of the younger generation, let's finish up on 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 your your day job, which is as a educator. Uh, we, we've been told that humanities were in crisis. That we didn't know one needed humanities. Everyone needs to learn how to code and speak Chinese and stuff. I, I, it has, have you noticed in the last couple of years that people are reengaging? Is there an enthusiasm, a passion for history on the campus and more generally? Uh, sir, I mean, the, the, one of the most positive things that I do notice is the people who who are learning Chinese or learning to code are also taking a second major in the humanities. And I think that that's completely indispensable. And I, I think this distinction between, you know, what we call over here STEM, you know, the sciences and engineering and math, and and the humanities has to be gotten over. I think it's, it's just good sense that if we're going to give people the psychological power that coding grants them, we have to also give them some kind of an ethical background so they're not just thinking of other people's minds as a, as, as a place to invade and change, but are thinking of other people as selves um, who have, you know, who have, who have, have duties and, and who have rights. I think it's natural that those two things should, should come together. And I mean, I, that, those are the students who give me the most hope, the ones who are, the ones who are double majoring, the ones who are kind of looking up from the coding and thinking about the should questions. And we just can't do that without the humanities. Part of the problem we're in is, is, has to do with just forgetting about history, but part of it has to do with the lack of a language to talk about, for example, Silicon Valley or to talk about Moscow. We know that something's deeply wrong, but without the humanities, we don't have the concepts, we don't have the bits of the English language we need to describe how it might be put right. Uh, Tim, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Tim Snyder, thank you very much. Author of The Road to Unfreedom. Good luck with the book and thank you for everything you're doing. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks so much. There you go, guys. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and all the very best with the launch and, uh, and the, the, the book. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to take away from this the, uh, the we're not panicking, sir. We're not panicking, <laughs> sir. You t- listen, you tell us to panic, we'll panic. But, but uh, in the meantime, I'm glad that we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Okay, thanks. Thank thanks you so very much. much. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.